you all musicians for uh, leading us in singing. <laughs> you know, our scripture passage this morning is found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. And so since you're already standing, I won't ask you to stand. <laughs> Would you uh, read along with me as I read this passage? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the promise, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have again to uh, open up your word. We thank you for giving it to us. It is indeed an act of your love toward us that we would be able to receive your word. And your word is the only word that is important to us. And so we ask for your grace that not only that we might uh, be able to hear your word, but that we might receive your word in our hearts and do according to it for the glory of your name. Amen. So as we start off this passage, the one thing you probably noted is that this passage starts off with a question. It starts off with a question, why then the law? Now, in order for us to give some understanding as to why this particular passage starts off with a question, we'll have to go back into Galatians and just kind of look at the context so that we can see how it is that in this letter to the Galatians that Paul ends up at this point with this kind of question, why then to law? What brought him to this point that he would have this kind of question, why then the law? But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Galatians or who they are or where they're located. Now, Galatia was a territory, a province of Rome that was located in part of what we would call Turkey today. And uh, there was a couple of cities in Galatia that we might be somewhat familiar with. Uh, those cities would be like Iconium, Lystra, and Durban. These are the people that is believed that Paul is writing to this, le this letter to. Now, there was a part of Galatia. This, this, these areas were in what's called Southern Galatia. There was a Northern Galatia. But it's believed that these cities are the ones that Paul was writing this letter to and the people who were in those cities. Why would Paul write a letter to these people? Because these were the ones that Paul went to visit on his first missionary journey. On Paul's first missionary journey, he went to these places and he gave the gospel to these people at that point. He opened up the word of God which was the Old Testament, and he told them about faith in Jesus Christ, how they might receive forgiveness of sins and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through anything else, but through faith in Christ. And so he's writing this letter to them uh, to remind them of that. But what but specifically is the occasion for Paul writing this letter? It is because a problem arose among the people in Galatia these people whom he loved, these people who he kind of brought into the kingdom by proclaiming the uh, word of God to them. A problem arose due to the preaching of some people 
that were called Judaizers, these people were preaching that you have to be circumcised in order to receive salvation. That you have to be circumcised. In other words, that you have to obey the law in order to receive salvation from God. And so Paul gives us, uh, he tells us in Galatians 1.6, or he, in other words, he identifies in Galatians 1.6 what the problem is. So let me read that to you. Just start off here. He says in uh, Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so he outlines what the situation is and the reason why he's writing this entire letter. Because Paul is astonished. He knew these people. He spent time with them. He gave them the word of God. And then he went on to another place, but then he came back to them and to make sure that they were firmly established in the truth of the gospel, that they were able to live in freedom in which the word of God brings to them, the gospel brings to them. And now he's astonished that these people are turning away. And who are they turning away from who are des deserting? They're deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ. And who is that? God. They're discerning God because they were going to something that was not of God for the sake of salvation. So he identifies what the problem is here. Now, Paul wants to also go ahead and kind of uh, tell them where it is that his gospel originated and what authority by which he was able to preach his gospel. And so let's look at uh, this same chapter, but we're going to look at verse 11 and 12. For he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So it wasn't originated by men. It was not developed by them. It wasn't from man's reasoning or anything like that. And then he says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul is stating there where his gospel came from. Since it didn't come from man, it came from God himself. It came when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and was blinded for three days. It came because Jesus revealed himself, the resurrected Christ, revealed himself to Paul. And, and through that revelation of who Jesus is, Paul came to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that he's preaching to everyone else. And so Paul has the authority to preach this gospel because the gospel came directly from God himself. And so, as Paul has the authority to preach this gospel, Paul also wants to explain, and I'm going to be skipping through this book of Galatians because there's a lot of things in there, and I'm just trying to get us to the point where we can see why this, this question comes up. So, bear with me as I kind of bring up passages here and there to kind of lead us to this thing. And so, uh, Paul um, uh, wants to also show them that this gospel, that is this gospel, quote, gospel, that others are proclaiming is not really any gospel at all. And matter of fact, it's in stark contrast to that which is the true gospel, that gospel which would declare a person to be righteous, that gospel that which would, would declare a person to be in good standing or uh, in good terms with God. This gospel that they're preaching, this false gospel, is in stark contrast to that. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. One thing I do want you to note is that 
in the book of Galatians, Paul uses these, these, the understanding of how he uses these pronouns is significant. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how our society wants to use pronouns. We're not talking about the same kind of thing here. We're just saying that when Paul uses a pronoun, like when he refers to you, he's talking about all the people in the church of Galatia, in the Galatian churches. What I mean by that, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles as well when he says you. But when he says we, he's speaking specifically about the Jews, himself as a Jewish person and those who are ethnically Jews. And so when we get to this verse in, 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 um, in uh, chapter 2, you'll see that he's talking about Jews. He's addressing the Jewish uh, contingent the Jewish believers among these churches in Galatia. So verse 15 of chapter 2 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, there wasn't a new concept to the Jew that you weren't justified by works. It wasn't a new concept. It was in the Old Testament that would tell them that they're not justified by works. And so Paul is saying, as a Jewish person, we know that we're not justified by works, by works of the law. And so he also wants to explain that anyone who relies on the works of the law for justification is cursed. So let's move on down to chapter 3, uh, verses 10, where he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. And so we see what the problem is, is that uh, Paul first identifies what the issue is. He tells them where his authority comes. He talks about how uh, that justification comes through faith, uh, and, and that's in stark contrast to this justification by the works of the law. And then he says that uh, those who are trying to be justified by the works of the law are under a curse because that's what the law does. Uh, because everyone can abide by the law, they break any part of it, they're under a curse, and all have broken parts of it, so they're under a curse if they're trusting in the law. And so then, if you can't become righteous by obeying the law, if you can't be justified by obeying the law, if you can't receive salvation by obeying the law, if you can't live life trusting in your obedience to the law, uh, to your eternal benefit, or to God's praise, if you can't receive the promised inheritance that he speaks about, in these chapters by obeying the law, then we can understand why he might bring that question up. Why then the law? In other words, he's saying, what, what's the benefit? What's the purpose? What's the use of the law? Why did God even bring the law into existence if nothing can happen with the law that we understand could have possibly happened with the law? Why would he bring it into existence? And so that puts us at the point where we are now with our uh, question. So let's look at verse 19. He says, why then the law? And he answers it. It was added because of transgressions. 
and was added because of transgressions. And so, is it that man committed no transgressions at all? Is the law the source of transgressions? Is the law the source of sin? That's not what Paul is trying to communicate here, that the law is the source of sins, but it was necessary to add the law in order to uh, make transgressions known. So let's look at from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we had Adam. And what was in effect from the very beginning with Adam? God's grace. From the very beginning with Adam, God's grace was in effect. And so God's grace has been in effect from Adam all the way up until the time of Abraham. And from Abraham, his grace was in effect all, all the way up to the time of Moses and the giving of the law. God's grace was in effect from the time of Moses and the giving of the law to the time of Christ. And God's grace is in effect now from the time of Christ to this very present day. God's grace is in effect. But because God's grace was in effect, there was something that mankind did not see. In general, but specifically, Israel did not see. And that is that Israel was not aware that their sin was a violation of God's will. They were not aware that their sin was a violation of God's will. Now, that may sound strange to us because we can read the Scripture and we know all the things that Israel had done and we know all the things that we have done, but they weren't aware. At least they didn't see the severity of sin with regards to God's will uh, and God's purposes. And so the law was added. Now, when we say the law was added, when the Scripture tells us that the law was added, what does that mean? What was it? If it was added, it had to be added to something. And the law was added to the promise that God had given to Abraham to the promises that he had given to Abraham and to his seed, that seed who would eventually be Jesus Christ, the seed that God would produce that all the promises would be fulfilled in him. And so it was added to that. Now, if there was a promise made, does the addition of the law void that promise? It does not. It does not void it. It does not take the place of it either. But in this case, the law was added so that it would go alongside with the promise because Israel did not understand the severity of their sin against God. And so let me read Romans 3, uh, verse 20 to you. So verse 3, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so we have to understand rightly, it's not because uh, sin was not happening, because we know since Adam, sin had been going on. I mean, God had brought the flood on the whole earth and destroyed man because sin was occurring. And he had brought judgment upon uh, the nations, and he even brought discipline upon Israel because sin was occurring. But they didn't understand that their sin was a violation of God's will. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, the law opens up an awareness to Israel of their sin. 
And that was a needed thing to happen for them. It was a needed thing. Listen to how Paul describes his own experience with regards to the law in Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7. Listen to what he says. Uh, what, sh what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So Paul understood himself in one way, but when the law came, he began to see something about his own self. And he tells us here that if, he had not, if it had not been for the law, he would not have known sin. Was Paul not a sinner before he understood the law? Sure, he was a sinner. Sure, he was a sinner, but when he came to know the law, the law showed him something about himself. The law showed him there was a sin. He, and he uses the illustration about, being, about coveting. The law said you shall not covet, but then all of a sudden he finds himself coveting all the time. Did Paul not covet prior to that? It's just that he wasn't aware that his covetousness was against God's will because God brought his law. And I, I guess I should say this, God's law with regards to Israel was what we would normally refer to as the Ten Commandments and those things in Exodus from 24 to 27 and, and uh, his sacrificial law. In other words, we'd have his moral law, God's moral law, civil law, and then sacrificial law. The moral law is the foundation for everything else. Civil law in Israel came from the moral law. And the civil law was that which said, this is what you don't do, and if you do this thing, this is what happens. Or if you don't do this thing, this is what happens. Okay, the consequences that you have to pay, whether you have to pay retribution or whether uh, this thing happens or even death, and some, depending on what moral law is breached. And so the civil law was like the judicial law. It would carry out the, the judgment upon the breach of the moral law. And so the moral law is first, that's the foundation. And then on top of that is the civil law. The civil law rests upon the moral law. And it really, every good civil law should rest upon moral law. Every good civil law should rest upon moral law. And then from that, once you breach the moral law and it is seen that that has happened and the consequences come to you on the civil law, then the sacrificial law is uh, put into place as men are able to go, men and women are able to go in, in Israel and make sacrifices to receive what forgiveness and to be placed back in a relationship with God. And so God gave them that so that they can see that when they did something, that it was a breach of God's will so they would understand the sinfulness of their sin so they can understand how this was an affront and an offense to God. And so God gave them the law between the time he gave the promises to Abraham and between the time that Christ came so that they could see that. 
Now, we're talking about Israel because anytime he talks about the law here, he's referring to Israel itself. And, and, and as, we, as I mentioned in uh, um, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, he talked about we ourselves are Jews. He's talking to the Jewish people. So they understand what he means, what he's referring to when he's bringing out the law in this way. And so Paul continues on in Romans when he talks about sin seizing opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. So apart from the law, if there's no law for them, they don't understand that they're really breaching God's will, that they're, that they're committing sins. And they live in such a way, doing all these things without any realization of the impact that it's going to have on them, of God's judgment and things like that, because they don't understand that sin is happening. They, it's not that they don't know that they commit sins. They don't know the severity and the degree of their sins. They don't understand that. But God brings this law, and then they see from a judicial standpoint that they broke the law and the penalties that are associated with that, then that is meant to lead them to God, meant to lead them to God's grace. He said that... Uh, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Apart from the law, Paul was able to do what he thought he was able to do without any sense of guilt or any sense of uh, uh, breaching what God has done, uh, uh, breaching God's will, without any sense of understanding it that way. He was able to feel free to do the things that he did. Certainly, his conscience may convict him on some things, but he was still free felt free to do that. So he felt like he was alive in that sense. But actually he was not alive. When the commandment came, sin came alive. See, sin seemed to be dead to him. But when the commandment came, he realized that sin really wasn't dead. Sin showed its head because it revealed itself to him in truth. And then all of a sudden he died. He said that sin deceived him. That sin used the opportunity of the law to deceive him, and through it, it killed him. He came to understand his state before God as a result of his sin. And so Paul says in verse 12 there in Romans, uh, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so when we go back to Galatians, and it says, why the law? We see why the law it was added because of transgressions in order to bring to light the transgressions of Israel. But it was added as a supplement to the covenant of grace that God had given to Abraham and his descendants. It's added as a supplement. It, like I mentioned, it didn't annul it. It was just going alongside of it. Uh, it, dis it did not mean that the law had to be obeyed in order for salvation to come about. Because we also know elsewhere uh, in, in Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, oh, Sorry. And Romans uh, 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. 
For where sin increased, grace bounded, abounded all the more. So law came in to, to uh, increase the trespass. It came in alongside of grace. Because uh, grace and law are diametrically opposed to each other, but they work in concert. Because you can't, you can see, receive salvation by grace, but only the law brings about judgment. And they work in concert so that when the law brings about judgment, that someone may look to God for grace in order to re receive the salvation that is needed. And so in order for grace to be seen for what it is, the law has to be seen for what it is. Sin has to be seen for what it is so that grace isn't taken for granted in that sense. So, uh, so verse 20 in chapter 3. Now an intermediary implies, I'm sorry, verse 19. It says that... Uh, Verse 19, when the law, why then the law? It was added because of transgression. And so the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All Paul tr is trying to communicate there is that while the, that the law is indeed a supplement to it, it is not on the same standing as his covenant of grace. The law was added after the fact, but the law is subservient to the covenant of grace and that the law is temporary. It's temporary because as the covenant of grace was given directly to Abraham from God itself, from God himself, this, uh, the law was given through mediators, through angels, and through Moses himself given to the people. And so because it wasn't given directly to them by God, it was given by God through intermediaries, that puts it in a second position, in a, in a, uh, in a subservient position to the covenant of grace. And so no one should think that the law is sufficient for accomplishing any of the things, or at least the Galatians shouldn't think that the law is sufficient for accomplishing any of the things that these false teachers, the Judaizers, are proposing that it should be able to accomplish. And then in verse 21 he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he answers that question, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so uh, the law is not contrary to the promises of God uh, because the law is not what brings about the promises of God. The law is what God uses to imprison everything under sin. It's important that that's understood in Romans 11, uh, verse 30. This is what Paul says about his own people as well as Gentiles. He says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that is the disobedience of the Jews, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin. 
so that everyone in the law would be shown, would be uh, communicated and given so that everyone can see that they're under sin. So that knowing that they're under sin, they can appeal to God in faith and come to Jesus Christ and receive uh, the promise that has been given to Jesus for those who believe. Why do we even talk about this today? Why even bring this up? Why even mention this to you all? Is it that I think that in this church that we would have a problem with the law, that we would misunderstand how the law is to be used? That we would think that we would have to um, do the things of the law in order to be pleasing to God, in order to receive salvation? That's not the reason why I would bring it up. Now, there could be somebody in here who could be hoping that they get to heaven, you know? And, and maybe if, if you're in here hoping that you get to heaven, maybe it's because you don't really understand what Christ has done on your behalf. And so you use that word hope like wishful thinking, like desiring that this thing happen. But if you really understood what Christ did for you, if you are a believer in Christ, you don't have to hope about that. You can know that that's the case. You can know that you have eternal life because God has promised that to all of those who believe in him and his son, Jesus Christ. You can know that. But there could be some, uh, some in this room that could be hoping that they get to heaven because they really haven't put the faith in Christ. They really haven't turned away from their sin. Maybe they don't even really know or really believe that they commit sins. They know they do little things wrong here and there, but those are no big deal with God. You know, God understands my heart. Yeah, God does understand your heart. He knows that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked because that's what he says about our hearts, that that's the way they are. And so you don't want to trust in your works which is why you're hoping that you get to heaven, because you're trusting in your works. It's not going to get you there. You won't make it. You won't make it. Even though you may be a good person, attending church, reading the Bible, doing all the things that the law would say you should do, you won't make it. Because the only way to get there is through faith in Jesus. He is the door. There's no other door. There's no other way. He is the way. And so, uh, but even then, that's, that's a side thing. It's not that I think that in this church that we misunderstand the use of the law, uh, uh, how we're supposed to think about the law. But I do bring this up because of what I mentioned earlier about the moral law and the civil law and the sacrificial law. See, while Israel had received the law from God, the Ten Commandments and all the other stipulations uh, and, and things that God, and ordinances that God had put upon them, the rest of the nations didn't receive that. It was only Israel who got in this law. It's, uh, when Paul is speaking here in Galatians, he's only applying that to the Jews because he knows the Gentiles believers didn't have that law like that. They didn't have that at all. But as we know in Romans chapter 2, that if the Gentiles do according to a law as if they had the law, 
and they'll be judged by that law that they've created in themselves. So there is a moral order, a moral law that God has put on the hearts of unbelievers. And while they didn't have the Ten Commandments like, like what we understand, they still have some sense of what is right and wrong. They still have some moral order. Now, whether they pay attention to that or not is another matter, but they still have that. And in countries around the world, in every society, laws are made based upon what people think that moral order is for them. They make civil laws and judicial laws. They may not make sacrificial laws or any of that kind of stuff, but they make those things based upon that moral order. And, and that's okay as well in a sense. But you know, the issue, especially in our society, in our country today, is this, is that civil laws are replacing moral laws as being the, the judge of what's right and what's wrong. So I mentioned earlier that moral laws are the foundation for the civil laws, but in our society, in our society, what's happening, the transition that's taking place is that civil laws are being created with a faulty moral foundation or no foundation at all. And so how can you have good civil laws if you don't have a right moral foundation, if you have a faulty moral foundation, a weak moral foundation? How can you have good civil laws? Because see, in our society, uh, our civil laws uh, will say that something is good that God's moral law will say is bad. And that seems to be the direction that we're going in. At some point, it may be that our civil laws will say that something is bad that God's moral law says is good. And that will impact us in a greater way than what we might see. Because when our civil law says, for you to worship God is bad, even though the worship of God is good in God's eyes, then how will we be? And so I bring this up with regards to the law to, uh, to just bring our attention to the fact that the world doesn't see the law the same way we do, we do. The world doesn't put importance on it the way we do. The world doesn't understand how God, why God established the law, why he even brought the law forward, why he even put the law in their own hearts like what we would understand. And so how is it that we're to use the law if Paul says, why then the law, and he tells us why then the law, because of transgressions, should we not use the law the same way because of transgressions? See, we can go and tell people about Jesus and tell them about the love of God and the hope of salvation and, and the forgiveness of sins when people don't even think that they sin at all. When they don't think they've done anything wrong. When they don't think they really, they, they don't, well, hey, I'm not as bad as this person, so because they're not as bad as this person, they think they're in good shape because they're gauging themselves based upon human beings and not upon what God thinks and says. 
And I bring this up because we can be fearful to tell people what the Word of God says. We can be fearful to tell people, this is not right. What you're doing is wrong. God didn't desire that kind of thing for you. God, God, God desires this for human beings, and when you do this kind of thing, you're going against what he desires. God doesn't want to keep you from enjoying life. He wants you to be able to enjoy life, to enjoy life to its full. I mean, Jesus said to us, right, that he came to give life and that to its full or in abundance, as some versions would say. He said that. Can we let people know that by telling them when, when they're moving in the wrong direction, if they're thinking their philosophy of life is wrong, showing them that, but showing them in such a way that helps them to understand that God desires for them to have what is good, to die, desires for them to live well in this life. But we can't be afraid to give them what the Word of God says, to tell them what is wrong and that what they're doing is not right according to God's Word, not according to our opinion. The law was given because of transgressions. And there are many transgressions but people are not aware. People are not aware because they've rejected God People are not aware because they think that if they follow the law, they'll be okay with God. People are aware because they're antinomian. They don't, they don't believe there's any law at all. They're free to do whatever they want to do. In either case, we have the truth, and we can make it known to them so that they might, in the awareness of their own sin and seeing that, like Paul, he was alive at first, but when the law came, he died, that they too might die to sin to themselves and live for Christ through our proclamation of his truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, we are grateful to you that doesn't matter who the communicator is of it, how well it's communicated, but that your word is that which goes forth. And so we pray that you would bless your word, not only in its going forth into our minds, but its development into our minds and into our hearts. May you be pleased to do this work, to build us up and to strengthen us, that we would be fearless people, not that we can boast about our own courage, but about the courage that you give to us, that we may live as bright, shining lights in this world of darkness, and that we may be, be your instruments to bring about your word of truth, your word of grace to people, that those whom you were called to yourself might be brought out of darkness and into your marvelous light. In the glory of your name we pray. Amen.